0: I like to think of games as metaphors for larger social systems. And so if you sort of layer that on, for me personally, taking it into surreal is like that would be so many levels of separation from what I'm trying to make the analogy for. In
1: a world where
2: something could be either a meme or a quote, uh, then that's reality approaching surreality in a pretty meta sense.
1: <laughs> oh, yes. I'm so glad we got that. It kind of begs a question, though, of like, if that is a potential reality, then What is reality anymore? Yeah, I mean, that seems like it opens a whole weird, weird Pandora's box. The blurring
3: of the line that way makes me think for the first time that that might ever come to pass, and now I'm having
1: all kinds of feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to my infinite god universe, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) You put so much faith in Homo sapiens,
3: Caroline. I love it.
4: (laughs) Hi, I'm Nathaniel Skye the host of the Immersion Nation podcast. Here, the masters of immersive experience create and conjure, muse and imagine the cultural revolution that is unfolding before us. That is immersive entertainment. Welcome to the third and final part of this roundtable discussion on immersive entertainment and its impact on the real world. Joining us, we have...
1: My name is Caroline
4: Murphy. Chief Creative Officer of Encantrix Productions.
3: My name is Jessica
0: Crean.
4: Founder of I Can't Go On Games. Hey, I'm Justin Files. Co-founder and Managing Director of Any One Thing. And...
0: My name is Risa Puno.
4: Creator of The Privilege of Escape and Creative Times, very first open call artist. In this episode, we push out to the edges of reality and ask the question... What happens when we're all creating immersive experiences for and with each other when the line between the hyperreal and the surreal begins to blur into daily life? I should say it might be a little tricky to jump in here if you haven't heard part one or part two because here, the concrete cadence of the conversation begins to transmute into the white hot liquid theory of this increasingly immersive world we live in. Last time... We lift off wondering how empathy, of all things, could be a destructive force. Well now, we talk about that and how to avoid it. How to lend yourself to a shared moment in a way that respects the unimaginable experience of another person. That and so much more.
3: So one of the the things about empathy in, in the real world is that sometimes I think that um, unpopular opinion here we like dramatically overuse it, um, and in the same way that immersive sometimes has no meaning because it gets applied to absolutely everything in every possible way. I think yeah. sometimes use empathy. Right. And then it's something this kind of catch all where we don't actually have to do any kind of critical thinking about it because we've all accepted that it is the best thing ever and it will save the world. But actually, I think it can, uh, as we've talked about with some immersive experiences, empathy itself can do a lot of damage. Sometimes Mm -hmm. there are there are times and ways in which. We, are, we cannot put ourselves in the shoes of others. And to do so is to do a disservice to the things that they have lived through and the, the people that they have become or the animals that they have become or whatever else it is. There are just some things that we will not understand. And the thing to do in those moments is uh, to discuss, to ask questions, to engage with people whose experiences we don't know, but not necessarily to attempt to feel exactly what they are feeling because we're not going to get there. And we're certainly not going to get there in the moments sitting there with that person so I think Because empathy is such an inherently self-centered activity, Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I think it just is what it is. Like Empathy is about us. It is about how how we relate to someone else's experiences and feelings. It is inherently taking someone else's experience and putting it through the lens of ourselves. I think that's really valuable in our own time to be doing that. But in the moment, if you're with someone, uh, it's not necessarily helpful to be attempting to do that while sitting there with them saying, "Mm, yes, I know how you feel. I know how you feel if you don't but that's why i think immersive experiences and games are so great for this is because they really provide a framework to be practicing empathy in ways that it's it is probably hopefully not going to be doing harm to people and still training us how to be the best possible agents that we can be and to to use empathy like a tool to say it's not who i am i'm i am not an empath but i am capable of using empathy when it is going to be helpful and not using it when it is going to
1: cause harm yeah. I love that I love that I, I it's a topic that comes up a lot in the design community and this concept of um, uh, trauma tourism right the idea that like in that it could be very harmful to design an experience that capitalizes on the pain of a uh, marginalized group um, that's that's not cool. We shouldn't be doing that.
0: Yeah. I totally agree that there are, um, that the word empathy gets thrown about in many different ways and that it, it can be really harmful and, and it can be really selfish. You know, I think that with, with our project, we, it was really important for us that when Um, when room A found out that room B had the red light, like we didn't want to be the ones to tell them. We wanted them to hear it from group B. Like part of our actor playing the research analyst was to draw it out of room B so that part of the exercise was listening. Like that was the biggest part was listening to them, describe the experience to describe what a pain in the ass it was to drag all of these heavy things over, like over and over and over and talk about how difficult it made that, you know, rather than just even just watching, right? There's a difference when you're really listening, but in terms of it, the potential for it to do harm is there's a lot like even in the design of, again, my game, sorry to go on and on about it, but it's just my easiest framework to go with. Um, we were trying to find a way to incorporate systemic change within the game mechanics, um, right? Easy peasy. Um, and so I made this flow chart that was like, uh, should systemic change be allowable in the game? Yes or no? If yes, is it mandatory or optional? If it's optional, um, should they have to work for it or is it something they have to sacrifice for? And if they have to sacrifice for it, what do you value enough in an escape room experience to make it feel like a sacrifice? And I had like this hypothesis and like I tried out this thing and I had like a whole framework planned. And then we took it to our social justice consultants and collaborators and they were like, Hmm, Risa, that's, that's kind of white savior behavior. And I was like, shit. And then you have to scrap it, right? Because it, cause, cause while it's a great tool, you don't want to do harm and mm-hmm. it, figuring out exactly where to aim it and how to calibrate it is, is tough
4: like are you cultivating empathy or are you cultivating sympathy and in that space is the person who is going through that experience trying to act or even think that they may be in a place where they're being empathetic when indeed they're being sympathetic because if that expectation of empathy is stated within an experience it's easy to sometimes find yourself in a place where you think you're being empathetic, but that is not actually the case.
3: Yeah. I would also argue there is like a real and valid place for sympathy in immersive experiences and in the world. Oh, certainly. There's definitely, you know, there's a lot to be said for, for really trying to embody what someone else is going through and like really put yourself there. Um, but there's also there's so much, maybe much more space for just walking next to people like hand in hand to say that, yeah, I recognize what you're going through and you have my support even without my, you know, maybe tears in this moment. And I guess it feels even strange to say tears because empathy and sympathy are both sort of founded on this idea that you are going through something with someone in some fashion when things are going wrong. Uh, And I don't even know if there is a word that Sort of speaks to what it, what it's like to go through something with people when they are are joyful, um, and I guess it makes me think about a lot of immersive experiences touch on really dark and deep and um, hard things, and that that often gets again becomes sometimes synonymous with transformation. But there is a lot of transformation to be found in joy as well, and I do a lot of immersive comedy and games, and they are things that are are very. Sometimes dark, funny, but sometimes just funny, funny. And those kinds of experiences, allowing ourselves to sink into and get in touch with the parts of ourselves that feel great joy and to feel joy for others when they are joyful, I think is in- incredibly valid. And, and um, has, there's a lot of exploration left to do in that space within the immersive world.
1: There, I know a word for that, uh, but it's a Sanskrit word that is used in Buddhism, but the word is mudita um, and it means basically sympathetic joy. Mm, I love that. Oh, yeah.
4: I love that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Mudita. Oh, man. I want that to be the title of the episode.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
4: <laughs> um, so speaking to speaking to actually something you had brought up um a few minutes ago, Jessica, the idea of the way that games can change the kind of topics that can be explored. I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are on the difference in design and difference in execution, and maybe just the experience itself between surreal and hyperreal experiences. So, for example, like hyperreal being something um, that is based in the real world but is a fictional fictional scenario, something that looks like an ARG or Justin kind of like your any one thing where it's like this is modern day, this is exploring a topic but in a real circumstance, versus surreal being things that are explicitly fictional, explicitly fantasy are based in a world that is not our own. Like, where do you think those two things come into play in comparison and in contrast insofar as the way that people interact with them, the things that people get out of them?
3: A really interesting question. I'm, I don't know that I have a coherent answer yet. Um, And I guess the, the question that it further brings up for me is like, what is the story around, around both of them? Because I've been in Hyper real and surreal performances that have made me feel surprisingly similar um and just that there is there is a world and do I believe that I am in this world and if I believe that I'm in this world then I'm probably going to be having really human feelings within it no matter what
2: totally yeah, uh, yeah we we always yeah sorry I had to hop off that bus i was like losing um but yeah we, we get the, that question all the time in terms of like oh so you think you know an experience has to be hyper real in order to drive empathy with people or you need you if it's not an immersive experience if it's not hyper real people need to suspend disbelief and put on the costume or if it's cosplay if not like no not at all it's just one way it's you know it's just one tool that you can use um, and for us when we're approaching topics like addiction which is something that a lot of people have some type of experience with whether it be personally or with a loved one and when we're approaching you know uh, data privacy and technology and digital legacy and mortality and an Alexa being an ever-present thing in your house. It, people buy into that stuff more when it's, when it's hyper real in this case, but that doesn't mean you couldn't approach those exact same topics uh, through surrealism or through any other type of, of uh, um, way of approaching it.
4: What are you guys' thoughts on the differences? Because you really can achieve so many of the same things no matter the setting of the world but are there any differences that come to mind insofar as what can be accomplished or could be accomplished within the spaces respectively?
2: Not to, Not to completely just piggyback on my own response right there, but <laughs> just from also a very practical level, um, our setting and everything is very light. Like we perform in people's apartments. Um, so to in order to transform that, we can do lights and sound and so forth. But to do the level of stuff you would do if you had full control over the space would be a lot different. Um, so instead we just use that to our advantage and just make everything hyper real from that point.
3: Yeah. There's, I have a piece running right now in New York called chaos theory. That is um, it is immersive, interactive, playable theater. And it is It is very real at the outset. You come to this meetup on chaos theory that is going to be led by this chaologist and you're here ostensibly for a lecture, although obviously the audience knows they're here for an immersive experience. And it sort of quickly goes off the rails from something that is a sort of a normal, uh, normal meetup experience into something that becomes not necessarily, not so much surreal as absurd, um, but it's never, it is always sort of skating this line between something that is, hyper real and dealing with very, very real things like misogyny and the scientific community and achieving the things that we set out to, to achieve or the things that we dream about in life and what holds us back and what it feels like to have feelings of, of chaos in the world and how we process those feelings collectively and as individuals. But it walks back and forth, um, from this space of, uh, of absurdity. And, uh, I would say, yeah, hyper reality, Often, it just sort of toggles this switch, um, moving in the end to a very, very real, very real place. Um, And I think the thing that makes it work in this show is that they're always in conversation with each other, that we're always sort of dipping this toe into, okay, the world is a weird, strange place that doesn't make any sense, but it really is the real world. This is where we exist. So, how can we make sense of it? Because it happens all the time. So clearly there are patterns to be found here, but also how fucking weird is that? Oh yeah, the world is just really weird. How am I going to process my personal weirdnesses? So it's not so much that the piece itself falls into one category, or another, but that certain moments and certain actions fall into these categories. And how do we deal with the, the experience of this back and forth that we have in life of sometimes feeling like things are so normal and sometimes feeling like everything is completely, completely off the rails.
0: Yeah. As a, as an audience member for, um, for Jessica's show, first of all, great. Um, and second of all, um, I definitely felt that I felt that for the most part it did feel hyper real, but there were moments, um, that felt surreal. And I think the, the sort of, um, fluctuation between the two sort of kept us on our toes. It, it was like real, but with a sense that anything is possible, um, which, which I think was really fun to watch and really really interesting to be a part of. I think as an artist, personally, just in terms of the medium I feel most comfortable with, hyperreal is, I don't even know if it's hyperreal. It's kind of just real, real. Like the privilege of escape was the most, well, was the only immersive thing, really. Like, most of my work is just interactive, um, and I rely on the context of of wherever it is, whether it's a park, a museum, um, a gallery, whatever. And so... I like to think of games as metaphors for larger social systems. And so if you sort of layer that on, um, then for me personally, taking it into surreal is like, that would be so many levels of separation from what I'm trying to make the analogy for that. I personally don't have the, I don't even like the, the story writing chops to be able to, to like guide the, the participant to, to, to what I'm trying to talk about, but, um, but I, but I think as an audience member, um, I think it's very fun to do. And I think that, um, it's fun when it's an escapist thing. I think it's fun when it's peppered in with a hyper real thing, like in chaos theory. Um, so I I think that it is a really fluid thing.
1: Yeah, I guess my perspective on this is, that I have a hard time personally distinguishing between the real and the surreal. (laughs) Like life is really weird. Like we do a lot of weird things that we kind of take for granted as being weird. That like a lot of things are handed down to us in society that we never question. And then one day you just wake up and you're you're like, what, (laughs) why, why does anyone do that? Um, so I don't know that I think that, uh, in, in a lot of my work personally, I like to build on the scaffolding of realism within the framework of, okay, I'm going to place you in a, um, you know, a, a real world setting, but set, you know, 20 years in the future or a real world setting set 300 years in the future, or I'm going to place you in the now and, um, but change a few things or tweak a few things, uh, First of all, it's much easier to production hack things that are in a, an earthly sort of framework. And the scaffolding is there for people to be able to kind of understand and, and more easily insert themselves there. And I think that having that scaffolding as a designer is extraordinarily useful because if I don't have to you know, give somebody a, a whole primer on the, the, the history and cosmology of this imaginary world that I've made up, then it certainly saves us all a lot of time.
0: I think having that framework and that structure there does definitely take, um, a lot of the heavy lifting off, off, um, off the creator. But I also think, um, whether you did, define it as surreal, hyperreal, whether it's sort of um, enough separation where the the visitor feels safe to be able to explore things that they might not in their everyday life, but enough ways to connect back to real life so that it is impactful is, is I think at least what I aim for.
3: Yeah, same. I wholeheartedly
4: agree.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Very cool. Very cool. I, I really like the idea that coming from, because this is not a perspective that I have as someone who is not an experienced designer, that surreal versus hyper real or however you want to couch that being in conversation or just there not being that much of a difference is, is just a very tangible part of designing any experience.
3: There's a, a um, I can't remember if it was, I don't know, a meme or a quote or something that I saw recently. I hope I don't butcher this. If I do, please feel free to cut this from the podcast. It was something along the lines of, the apocalypse is what happens when what is already happening to other people happens to us has anyone seen that or know what i'm talking about no it was um i'll try and find the the quote it's it's just speaks so much to this idea that our experiences are so personal and things that are absurd for one person are, are not going to necessarily be so for another person or an entire life can exist in such a way that it would be surreal to somebody else. Um, I mean, it's talking directly about privilege, um, but I, I thought it was just this really powerful way of saying that, you know, like these narratives, these stories that we craft for ourselves are things that sometimes other people are, are actually experiencing and what obligation do we have as storytellers to, to understand what absurdity or surreality really means in the world and and who, who it means that
1: for.
2: I also think that in a world where something could be either a meme or a quote, um, then that's reality approaching surreality in a pretty meta
4: sense.
1: Oh yes. I'm so yeah. glad we got that. That's that was yeah. a gem. Yes.
0: Yeah.
4: <laughs> Yeah, show Absolutely. notes marker added right there. Um, but yeah, I that that whole idea of d- the definition of the apocalypse is just a almost a more candid version of the whole the quote that's like the future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed. There are a lot of things that are here that are just not evenly distributed. So, speaking to potential speaking to different versions of reality as objectively or subjectively experienced um, what just kind of casting our casting our line of thought to the future um, which we have touched on a little bit already what do you guys see as like the wildest version or that you could potentially imagine of having a much greater capacity, societally, culturally, to intentionally create experiences with the tools, the skill sets, the language that immersive experience designers are creating now, like in the future where that is, again, much more commonplace where we have that potential. What do you think that that might look like?
0: I mean, there's
1: the what it will look like in five years from now, what it will look like in fifty years from now, and what it will look like a thousand years from now—kind of like answers, right? Where what it might look like a thousand years from now, like, hey, maybe we'll be like immortal beings that could just plug ourselves into experiences anytime we want to and be able to experience all realities at once and and uh, become infinite and become become god. Uh, that would be great. That's what I, that's what I'm aiming for personally, but. <laughs> But um, until then, I think that we have to like take steps along that path of, of, you know, as I guess as artists, like what we want to say and how we want to say it and in what formats that we want to start delivering those stories. And also with the, you know, bearing in mind that we're living in a really strange time of change where I think that we're culturally due for a a reevaluation of how we value a lot of the different things in society. So I'm hoping that one of the things that society is going to decide that it values a lot more is experience and that we're going to see more, um, you know, more people experimenting with these things, more people investing their time and energy in these things, more grants for this kind of work to be done um, and just more development along these lines.
0: Yeah, if I think about totally. Go ahead. Risa. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say that, well, first of all. I, I, for one, definitely do not want to become an infinite godlike being. I don't want that sen- I don't want that much responsibility. That would terrify me. Just for the record. Um, <laughs> also, um, I think that um, in terms of what I hope it'll look like later, I, I hope that it will look like something I can't even wrap my head around right now. Like I hope that it is so surprising and exciting that it's it's just so far from from anything I know. Um, but I think that I also really hope that in like a newer medium, I hope that there's a way to make room and make space for stories and for people who, where it's harder, maybe harder in another medium, harder, whether it's more of a politics sort of break into the industry sort of situation, or maybe that their story just doesn't translate into other mediums. I hope that it makes space for that. And for those people.
3: Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. Um, I cannot imagine this. So I think it falls into both camps. But I would love I would love for that to look like in some world like what would it look like to be building immersive experiences outside of a purely capitalist forum? Like I I think about like what kind of work I would make, how often I would make it, uh, who it would be for if I wasn't worried about paying rent. Um, And I don't think everything would change by any means, but I do think that there are some things that I would do differently. And I'm sure every single artist and human that I know would do differently. And I would love for there to like, let's go ahead and can we make that experience? Uh, maybe we can prototype that in an immersive
1: experience. Yeah. Who designed this system and who's it benefiting? Yeah,
2: <laughs> Definitely. I was actually, I was going to touch on the flip side of that as well though, is, you know, film books tv video games they all are commercially viable and i imagine in the next 10 to 15 years we'll see a spot where this industry is
4: also commercially viable
1: yeah i
4: agree (laughs) yeah and i mean here's to hoping that something like odyssey works could just become generally available to anyone and everyone that that is a tangible and closer future that i think that is uh very exciting potentially. Yeah.
3: And how cool would it be if we could be doing that for each other if it were kits, tricks, education to say like, hey, here is how you design really great experiences for people that you know or you don't know, like here's how to do that. Like I make games for, for friends and, and partners, like just based on their lives, just for fun, because it's great to be able to say like, who are you as a system and how do I build something around you? So they're much smaller than Odyssey works. They're, they're really they're, like very intimate experiences, but it would be so cool to be, to be
1: doing much, much more of that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I like
1: Absolutely wholeheartedly agree
4: that version of the future where it's not just like it's not just productions, but again, coming back to the idea of like experiential literacy, like what if that winds up being what the future kind of looks like? People being able to just add intention to the kind of experiences that they create and have with and give to the people in their lives on a daily basis.
0: It
1: kind of begs a question, though, of like, if that is a potential reality, then what is reality anymore? <laughs> Reach. <laughs> yeah and is it wouldn't that be fun to figure out yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah if only people would start thinking of each other more more carefully and thoughtfully and intimately
3: <laughs> and have the resources to do
4: so yeah
1: yeah wow
4: <laughs> yeah yeah that I mean it, it seems like we are kind of moving like right now I guess just with maybe communication technology might be the turning point Um, to some degree that question of what is reality and us having much more flexibility and what could realistically be called reality getting a lot more that barrier just becoming a lot thinner um, consistently and continually what is imagination and what is tangible and the, the reality that we are heading to a place where the two will be indistinguishable from each other or maybe couldn't even be thought of as two different concepts at all
3: yeah. And to do so without losing our ability to be like tangibly tactilely connected to each other and to the like, the corporeal physical
2: world. Which I think is something that this medium does really well is it still despite putting you in a new world says come out and be in that new world with other actual humans and not, you know, just in your digital game world or, or you know, on Facebook and social media, whatever, but like actually go interact with people, even if it's not 100% reality.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, um, in, in making it real, it's, it's also outside of just connection and things like that. I think there's also a certain accountability that comes when you're experiencing something with other people in front of other people, right? It's like, you can't, you can't hide.
4: Totally. That's very, very true. The context, the, the tenor of the interaction is just very, very different. Um, And so we have this, like, you know, the internet as a thing, it's a space where, you know, thoughts and ideas can quickly manifest into reality, like the idea that that could potentially be like the tangible lived reality, the interactive in-person experiences could become the barrier between an idea and a real experience growing thinner is also a really curious concept too.
3: Yeah, I mean, that seems like it opens a whole weird, weird Pandora's box here of like, what it would it be like, where our physical world is actually like much more crafted than our digital experiences? What if the things that what if the the spontaneity of our lives somehow primarily existed in a digital world and and our, yeah, our, our sort of lived uh, bodily experiences were deeply constructed uh, or curated. I don't think I like that. I don't love the idea that that would be, ever be the case. But that blur- the blurring of the line that way makes me think for the first time that
1: that might ever come to pass. And now I'm having all kinds of feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my infinite God universe, everyone. <laughs> You put so much faith in homo sapiens, Caroline. I love it.
4: (laughs) We can keep our fingers crossed. (laughs) So on that note of the infinite potential horizon, um, coming back to just this moment is kind of the final topic here. For this kind of, I don't know, uh, renaissance maybe wave revolution, blossoming, what have you of experience design as it's happening right now. There have been so many things that look similar to this in different ways, whether that be, say, organized religion, as um, had been touched on earlier, or communal experiences, shared experiences. But we have this thing happening right now that feels different. Like, well, first off, before I get ahead of myself, do you guys share that idea that there is presently an uptick, a uh, surge of immersive experiences and thinking around that kind of thing right at this moment? Yeah, it I certainly
1: think, seems so.
3: Yeah, definitely. It definitely feels that way. Um, at the very least, we're talking about it differently and people who are doing things in disparate realms um, or adjacent realms are really coming together to discuss what the intersections of all of the things that we're making are I remember a few years ago, I was making immersive experiences that I didn't have a, a, a phrase for. It. So I was calling things site specific, but they they were not site specific. Uh, they could have been really anywhere. They just were breaking the fourth wall. Um, there just wasn't a term for it. So the the way in which things are are cohesing and coming together, uh, and the kind of conversations that are happening, definitely seem to be accelerating the pace of the the growth of the immersive industry.
4: So that leads to the question of why do you guys think now? Why now?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, i I have my own kind of like like suspicions about this that well, I will be hoping to maybe prove out through research with this the undertaking of the PhD. Um, but I suspect that there's something to do with the fact that we grew up with this. Uh, vast connected information network um that we are now seeing it uh in its a very a very exploitative form of it that did not used to be so uh so much the case uh but i think that like we are probably all of us here of a generation that we grew up with uh with the internet with a lot of connectedness in our lives uh with um, you know, being able to see and experience different realities we're through a lot of different game mediums, through uh, all ki- all kinds of different things, and I think that the impacts of that and the way that it's changing our—if not our—changing our brains or changing our minds, then changing the ways in which our brains and our minds um, perceive things and perceive reality, uh, then. I, I don't, I, I'm not exactly sure like what is precipitating it, but it's certainly we're seeing like d- diversity in how humans behave and I- interact and exist with a lot of these new technologies, um, including things like increased depression and anxiety to a scale that like what we are, it seems unprecedented. Um, and I think that a lot of this like hunger and desire for connectedness and for returning to, um, you know, these in-person experiences and like, and tangible connectedness is a, a big reaction to a lot of those, the, you know, the darker sides of that connected reality that we're, that we're seeing.
0: I definitely think that it, uh, a lot of it is the pendulum swinging the other way, like the, the, in wanting to disconnect in some ways and reconnect in other ways, the, the need for intimacy, the need for, um, just something that feels more real, more tangible, and more where you're more accountable. Um, but uh, it's funny. So I, I actually think, I think I might be the oldest person on this call because I um, I remember what it was like before the internet um, when I walked to school in the snow and Coke was a Pepsi. <laughs> <it> was a, <laughs> not a Pepsi, it was 10 cents, no, for real. But like, I remember growing up when I was like in elementary school and like writing like a report, right. And if it wasn't in the encyclopedia and if my parents didn't know the answer, there just wasn't an answer until I was able to like go to a library, maybe like, that's just how it was. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think it wasn't until, um, I mean, I think we got, we got, internet. We had a prodigy account when I was in like middle school or something. And, but I never had to worry about things like cyber bullying and I, um, or trolling, you know, not, not until much later now, now, now I have to worry about that. Um, but not so much then not during like formative years or anything like that. And, um, on one hand there is, yeah, I mean, it sucks not to be able to to have answers and have access to things. I think it's opened up so much for, for people. It's, it's made it so that lots of people can weigh in rather than just the, the people who are, you know, with the bigger voices, the, the bigger budgets, the, like the production companies, corporations behind them, things like that. Um, it, it certainly feels more democratic in a way, but I also think, I don't know, I think that there's a romanticism for, um, like if you haven't experienced something, like when I think about the times, um, in history that I have not experienced, I, I think I romanticize them. And so I, I sometimes wonder if, if people are either people who haven't experienced it are, are romanticizing it or people who, um, have experienced it, but, you know, memory, memory always, uh, colors the, the records of the past.
3: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. To all of that. Um, The other thing that makes me think about is the fact that we, I mean, artists are doing a lot of creative problem solving nowadays around all of these things. And like, that's part of why I think we're choosing immersive over other mediums. But also, you know, it used to be that going to an immersive environment meant like going to Disney World. Um, and now we have more people who are feeling empowered to make decisions and create experiences. And so we, uh, we do have, you know, for all of its limitations, like much, much greater diversity of, of being able to step into immersive worlds that take us to another place than we used to have. And I think the fact that that we have that that empowerment, we have so much individual or small group empowerment is also like really due to the fact that we grew up with all of this agency, the ability to find answers for ourselves, or um, suddenly we have this ability to connect with people all the way around the world, and anything seems possible, or at least it did for a while until we were like, oh, wait a second, now we are suddenly as a, a species being driven towards a potential particular end. So with all of that infinite possibility available to us, why wouldn't we create really elaborate worlds if, if games are doing this already for us, or, uh, the internet is already doing it for us. Why wouldn't we try to make them as real as we possibly can sort of melding this, these childhood experiences of going to an immersive environment with the things that we care about now and want to be exploring.
0: Yeah. And, and I think too, that, um, that there is I feel like creators now are are willing to put more trust in a way in their, in their audience, in their visitors, in their participants, right? Like, I feel like by the nature of it, when you allow people in and, and share space with them, they, they become authors too. There's a collaborative aspect to it that, um, I think is more welcome now than it used to be.
3: Yeah. There's also, we look at, um, Like there's so many complex systems out there in the world and they're really hard to get a handle on, let alone feel empowered around. And I feel like a lot of the reason I can only really speak for myself here, but a lot of the the reason that I I make playable things or introduce play to systems that otherwise would not be playful, like philosophy and climate change and chaos theory, is to help them to be understood and sort of bodily experienced in a way that makes them make sense and feel Um, and have people feel like they can have agency within these systems. So I think a lot of it is really in direct response to the fact that the world is often a chaotic and disorganized place. And here we are as storytellers and game designers saying, hey, we're going to try and make some semblance of sense out of this. Do you want to come do this with us? And I think that's really inviting and appealing to people nowadays when things are are feeling really messy in the world.
1: Mm -hmm. I I totally resonate with the idea of like of adding play to something in order to make it, um, to to make it motivating and make it really accessible and fun for people. Uh, I I do this for myself all the time, like to, uh, you know, I, I don't like working out, so I'll make a character who really likes working out (laughs) and then I I have to work out.
4: (laughs) I'm definitely going to have to steal that trick.
0: (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work on me, but <laughs> I'm willing to try, yeah. I one hundred percent agree about about the power of play and about how um and and about how that can be really helpful, like again, with my game, the privilege of escape, the reason why I did that was because I felt like the word privilege is it it's it's a tricky word, right? because in a in a social context versus in say an economic context,. It, it, It has sort of different meanings or or not exactly the same meaning. And so that was something that I feel like people are getting really bogged down in. They're still getting bogged down in with language. And I feel like I just wanted to make an experience that that encapsulated the mechanics of it and sort of distilled it in a safe way. And, and I really think that the games help do that um, and, and they can make it simple and easy to digest and make it accessible. Like, I think that's another thing about play is that um, it makes it so that you don't necessarily have to understand the entire like canon associated with a certain medium, a certain um, subject matter. You can, you have a point of access. You can like touch it, play it, you, you, and in games, you know what the goal is often. <laughs> and there's sort of rules for engagement that it's like bumper bowling in a way.
4: <laughs> and actually, I don't know, Justin, if you're still on, um, but I wanted to make sure I'm you here. had a chance to share your thoughts if you had anything in there.
0: Yeah,
2: no, I mean, I agree with all of that. I would say the the one spot where maybe I dissent a little bit is I think, when it comes to making things accessible, yes, play is great for people who like doing that um, and, and other people might not resonate that way. So, you know, it's really when you're when you're trying to tell a story, it's trying to think about who your audience is and, and connect with them in some way. And there is just there are so many different ways to do that. Um, and, you know, to your to your point, like Disney World did that for a long time. Um, and we're in a spot now where we have different types of technology and different types of stories and a different reality to deal with. And that means we're going to have to tell those things in different ways.
3: Yeah, definitely. For as immersive is amazing. It also doesn't have to mean interactive at all times. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Definitely. We, in particular, like we have people that come in, um, like I said, Souvenir takes place in, in a flat, like in an apartment and people come in and they'll start like reading every single card that's laid out and looking at every photo, some of which are part of the set, some of which aren't. Um, and we have other people who come in and just kind of stand there. And that doesn't mean that either one is taking in the story more or less. They just have different ways of kind of digesting the world and becoming a part of it
4: to wrap back around super briefly to the idea of creating a character that likes to work out like (laughs) we've touched on empathy and agency and like so many topics um over the course of this conversation but to come back to identity there it's like we suddenly have like in no other time the access to maybe not other identities but a much greater awareness of other identities. And, you know, with right now the whole, like, the term identity politics being so present in all of our minds, likely, like this idea of identity as, like one of the intrinsic staples of immersive experiences in the exploration of that. um, It seems like the identity might be part of why now. (laughs) I feel like in a lot of ways.
3: Yeah, I don't. I don't know enough about the history of like the term identity to be able to speak to this with like the utmost confidence. But there does seem to be something in the zeitgeist right now that says identity is who we are, um, a little bit more than maybe what we do, and. Immersive experiences really allow us to do, to, to take action, not just to have this sort of heady experience of who am I, but to put those things into play, to see what it actually feels like to live that way. Uh, and I tend to steer clear of character or not. That's not true at all. Actually, I play characters, um, but I tend to. To allow or invite the audience to, to not do that, um, to play as themselves or maybe just sort of heighten one aspect or facet of their own personality um, in at a given moment or in over the course of a, a production, because there's so much to play with there already. Um, but I, I really do love this idea that we can play ourselves and sort of play with ourselves and with our sense of identity throughout a piece to say, OK, in this moment, I am being this Kind of human, or I am tapping into this particular aspect of self without it having to completely and totally dominate who we are. Um, I love I love playing with that nuance and letting people have an opportunity to to do the same themselves.
1: Totally,
2: I, I love the idea of somebody being able to you know play themselves, but step out about like you know step out of their track a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll, that, you know, if they can get like a taste of something else, maybe they don't need to become someone else to understand something.
1: Yeah, identity is such an interesting question from, for me um, because I have done so much uh, growth and and exploration of my own identity through uh, ha- having different types of, of immersive experiences. Um and, and a lot of it is can be incredibly therapeutic and and helpful. Um, I think especially when you're uh, when you're a queer person, um, it can be really freeing uh, to be able to take yourself out of the the societal conception of what you are, be able to do something different and say, Oh, that is actually more real <laughs> mm-hmm. that that is more real for me. Um, but I also think that like my perspective on this is definitely colored by my own experience. It's really hard for me to say that that is, is something that's true or, or that might be true for everyone. Um, because to me, it's like, oh, yeah, well, it's so obvious, like, gender not a binary, <laughs> of course, but, but, you know, that's something that t- took me like, you know, 30 years to figure out for myself. Um, and that I wouldn't want to like force my perspective about identity on someone else. Um, but you know, what I perceive to be truth, I like definitely try to build in to my, my own kind of framing of experience design.
4: So I think that actually might be a really incredible note to um, start looking at wrapping on. Guys, this has been like, without question, highlight of my week um, and probably the last few. Uh, Thank you so much for being willing to take the time
1: thank you for your continued efforts to document this emerging, like crazy wild field and connecting uh, creators in this, in this field, because uh, that is really, really important work. And I I think it's great. So thank you.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's, especially in terms of like issues of responsibility as a designer, right? As as somebody who's um, crafting narratives and and speaking for yourself, but not over other people. For example, you know, I think that listening to other people's considerations and the things that you all think about when you're uh, making it, it, it I hope that I become a better and more responsible um, person in as as I make my away from the periphery of this industry (laughs) yeah
3: thirded uh or seconded on all
4: fronts (laughs) all right so yeah and on that note of responsibility actually like there's definitely like as we've been going through for the last couple hours i'm like hmm that seems like it may need to be the topic of a conversation an entirely different conversation (laughs) there's so much in there oh my word there's so much in there um does anybody have any last notes or anything they want to put out into the, uh, into the audio sphere um, before we go?
1: Um, I'll mention that um, my experience uh, design called Calculations um, has been adapted by Sinking Ship Productions, and they're running that in New York. The initial run of it has sold out, but I believe that they are extending the run. So uh, look for it at SinkingShipCreations.com. Um, awesome.
0: Awesome. Awesome, congrats.
3: Yeah, Thank I have um, I have a show running in New York called Chaos Theory at Caveat on the Lower East Side. We run the first Thursdays of the month at 7 p.m., uh, at least through May. And if you want to find me on social media, I am at I Can't Koan, I-K-A-N-T-K-O-A-N. Um, and this is Jessica.
1: Um, yeah, and, oh, sorry.
0: <laughs> go on.
2: Hi. I was going to say, um, Souvenir by anyone One Thing is running at least until the end of February. Um, we're about to announce all of those shows uh, later this week. Um, and on social media, we're at any underscore one underscore thing.
0: Um, this is Risa. And um, I have a couple of things in the pipeline, but I have yet to sign the contract, so I can't say yet, but if you uh, keep a look out on social media or my website, it's all just risapuno or risapuno.com. I'll be telling more about it. Also, I will be um, a featured speaker at the upcoming Hero Summit and Festival for Interactive Design in Pasadena in March. Oh, awesome.
4: Fantastic, fantastic. And of course, for everyone out there listening, um, you can find all of those links to all of these incredible things that are happening now and coming up on the horizon in the show notes. And I'd seriously recommend keeping an eye out for the work of these fantastic creators. Once again, thank you to Caroline Murphy, Jessica Crean, Justin Files, and Risa Noah for your insights, creations, and your deeply thoughtful perspectives on participation in the immersive revolution. For all of you listening, I hope we have the chance to find ourselves sharing an immersive adventure at some point in the near future. But until then, I am looking at an adorable little pie chart that says that 68% of you wonderful people are at this moment listening on some sort of Apple or iOS device. If that's you and you think these conversations are at all important for the immersive community... Please take just a moment to review the Immersion Nation podcast on iTunes. That moment not only makes a world of difference for us, but goes to support all of the brilliant immersive creators that we have on this show. And if you do, we want to say thank you. We would love to give you a shout out by name on the next episode. And sincerely, thank you all for joining us on this adventure.